Yemunla, you're listening to Karukeraman EV, Karukeraman, the English version. Karukeraman is a podcast about the representation of the Caribbean in cinema and television. I'm your host, Patra M, and today I'm presenting you my guidebook on the representation of slavery in French cinema and television. It's a six-part series, and this is episode six, the final episode. Let's go. Presently in Caracaramon Evie, I presented you the first five steps of my guidebook on the representation of slavery in French cinema and television. Step one was the importance of temporal contextualization. The beginning of the slavery system is never shown, nor the way it collapsed, as most films and series about slavery are set between the late 18th century and the 19th century. Step two was the importance of spatial contextualization. The fact that films and TV shows are never specific about Europe being the place leading the transatlantic trade creates a distance and a lack of awareness on why the world is the way it is today. Step three was about how these films and series struggle to humanize black people. Step four was how these films and series also do everything to humanize white people and erase free people of color of the representation. Step five was the representation of the power dynamic through physical violence on black people. So in 2017, I attended a seminar on the theme Slavery's Legacies Black Struggle and White Suprematism at the Columbia Global Center in Paris. One of the speakers was photographer Nicolas Localzo. He talked about his jump project, Memories of Colonial Slavery and Emancipation Practice. Basically, he takes pictures to question the concept of colonialism, slavery, resistance, struggle to fight against slavery, and the legacies in our contemporary societies. And in this series he presented us that day, he wanted to discuss the South colonial legacies and colonial memory-related history. The majority of the pictures were old white women looking straight out from Gone with the Wind. During the Q&A session, I asked if he consciously selected these pictures to show that white women actively supported slavery. He answered that he chose these pictures because he thought they were good pictures and he did see women as the gatekeepers of the South traditions. He didn't say, as you notice, that he meant to show white supremacy through white women. In case you're wondering, there was an awkward silence after my question and his reply doesn't answer. My question. I do think he genuinely chose these pictures to show beauty, to show something that wouldn't make people uncomfortable. And to me, that's what's interesting. White women are presented to show the quote-unquote good side 
of Slaverism. Last year, the main actress of the series Josephine Guardian Angel shot an episode set in Martinique during the slavery days. She was asked in an interview if she wished she could have lived back in the early 19th century. She said no, and here's why. She likes the dresses women wore back then, but what's cool about 2019 is that we can dress the way we want to. Yeah, she only cares about fashion. She doesn't think about how French society was built on slaverism. I gave you these two examples to show that there's a disconnect in the representation of slavery. Either people picture black people being tortured, either people picture white people living a fancy life. They don't make the connection that this fancy life was made possible because other human beings had to suffer. So, this is a trigger warning. I'm going to talk about the representation of the sexual violence that enslaved black people had to endure. I'd totally understand if you don't want to listen to this. So if you don't, I thank you for taking the time to check in and I'll see you when I'm back with my regular episodes. In Ebony Wood, broadcast on French television for the first time in 2016, the white mistress only laments because the slavery system divides people. But she doesn't talk about the benefits she gets from the system. For instance, she's going back to France with a young black girl who will be her 10-year-old daughter's maid. What the white mistress says is politically correct for today. However, this representation of a white woman is out of the ordinary. Cinema and television usually show white women as characters with power and who knows they have that power. In French television, I only have one example of white women not being represented as powerful women in this kind of setting. It's in the TV film Les Mariés de l'Ile Bourbon, directed by Zan Palsy. I have no other French example. If you have examples from the US or the UK or Brazil, don't hesitate to share. My point is, these films and series always show how even white little girls know how the slavery system works and which power they have. So like I said in episode 5, the first storytelling strategy to show the power dynamic is to use physical violence against black characters. The second storytelling strategy is to show the system through the behavior of white women because it is then easier to make the system look less violent. For about 30 years, historians have been writing and proving the importance of white women in slaverism and how they helped the system to thrive. Recently, American historian Stephanie Rogers released her book They Were Her Property, in which 
she talks about how, in a world of patriarchy, slaverism gave white women power over other human beings. Historian Sir Hilary Beckles has been specialized in this topic for Caribbean history since the 80s. In France, we have great historians with lots of knowledge about how the slavery system worked in Guadeloupe, Martinique, Guyana, and Réunion Island. However, I have yet to find an academic paper, let alone an academic book, openly talking about the role of white women in French slaverism. That's why it's even more interesting that a documentary fiction was made a very rich white mistress whose habitation was on Réunion Island. Her name was Mrs. de Bassin, and she lived between the mid-18th century and the mid-19th century. She died just two years before the second abolition of slavery. Historians say in the docufiction that she became a legend not because she was a woman better at handling the business than any other white man. She became a legend because of her longevity. It seemed that it was actually quite common that white mistresses ruled the habitation on their own when their husband died. And since women usually live longer than men, this woman could spend 10 or 15 years enjoying all the benefits of being the habitation mistress, which means being also slave owners in bitter tropics. Olympe represents both sides of the representation of white women in fiction about slavery. On one hand, she symbolizes innocence and gentleness. On the other hand, she's aware of the power that her being white gives her over black people. Not only she's aware, she knows how to use it to get what she wants. She's new to the Caribbean. She has no experience of the system while her brother expresses horror and confusion about how slavery can be possible. She just goes with the flow. For instance, in the first sequence of episode 1, she asks Théophile to buy Koyaba as a gift to her. And later on, like I said in episode 5, she makes Koyaba get whipped for trying to protect Adèle from her. Now, what happens is that Théophile refuses to hit Adele anyway, because he's just a walking paradox like that. My point is, Olympe knows her privilege and she isn't afraid to use it to hurt other black characters. At some point, she even does what I consider the ultimate master move. She sells a couple of her slaves, Adele included. So a character like Olympe is ordinary in the representation of slavery in cinema and television. That's why Ebony Wood was confusing to me. The white mistress in Ebony Wood sounds so much like she isn't a part of the system, although we never get to see her actually trying to help the enslaved black people. The thing with the white mistress character is that white women being usually perceived as powerless help create these kind of funny moments where you see the enslaved characters making fun of the white mistress. They wouldn't dare to do it to the white master. 
you see it like three, maybe four times in bitter tropics between Rosalie and Olin. That's definitely what you see in British miniseries The Long Song. The very first sequence is July ignoring Caroline, the white mistress. And then you see July lies to Caroline about what happened to Caroline's dress. And when Caroline realizes that July is lying, she nonchalantly threatens her of punishing her with whipping. However, the series show how Caroline is very dependent on July because she has no friends, she has no family, because her brother dies at the end of episode one. And Caroline keeps complaining about the plantation and the life in Jamaica, but still she stays because she knows she would be powerless in London because she doesn't have a husband. So this setting allows to expand the boundaries for July to be insolent with little consequences. Let's be clear. Regardless of how the enslaved black characters can make fun of the white mistress, ultimately the power dynamic doesn't change. The white mistress still holds the power. In the long song, you really see this power struggle when the character of Robert Goodwin gets in the mix. There's some kind of quote-unquote love triangle going on. Caroline wants Robert, who quote-unquote falls in love with July, who quote-unquote falls in love with him. And he comes up with the perfect plan. He marries Caroline, but every night he sleeps with July. This brings me to the next storytelling strategy I want to talk about when it comes to power dynamic. It's the representation of sexual violence. And here it's important to see the difference between the white master slash enslaved black woman dynamic and the white mistress slash enslaved black man dynamic. By the way, I don't think I've ever seen on screen the representation of a relationship between a white mistress and an enslaved black woman or a white man and an enslaved black man. Historians researched this and it did exist too. In Bitter Tropics, there's this minor white character who is a friend of Théophile Bonaventure and there are innuendos about his sexuality. So we know he's gay, but we don't know if there's something going on with his slaves. And I know recently there was the book The Confessions of Franny Langton by Sarah Collins, which is about an enslaved black woman and her white mistress. Anyway, just know that here I'm talking about heterosexual power dynamics and how films and series try to use quote-unquote love to hide that power dynamic. Just like the whipping scene, the rape scene is another stereotype in the representation of slavery. Either you see the struggle right before the black woman gets raped, either you see her right after, or you see the character running away, but you know at some point the woman will get raped. The message 
behind this stereotype is that black women's bodies can welcome any form of abuse from anyone and people will get away with it because black women's bodies are disposable. In bitter tropics, Théophile wants to use what we call in French his droit de cuissage. This comes from the Middle Age when the Lord had the right to be the first man to sleep with young girls among his servants. Théophile wants to be Adèle's first sexual experience. So she makes sure to have sex with Koyaba first. That way, she claims back some sort of agency and control over her own body. What's interesting is that although we don't get to see exactly Adele being raped by Théophile, we do see how she deals with the aftermath in a short scene afterward. We see her crying in her father's arms. All throughout the series, Théophile is obsessed with Adèle, but there's no doubt about the fact that she hates him and only loves Koyaba. The lack of ambiguity was a good thing because most of the time, cinema and television use the word quote-unquote love to describe the white master-enslaved black woman relationship. How can it be love when one isn't free to say no? Unless the woman gets her freedom, I don't call it love. And even then, I'd, I'd be very wary of calling it love because they were not equal when the relationship began. In Ebony Wood, the white mistress gives a beautiful, beautiful speech to describe the hypocrisy of Caribbean society. White men hate black men but they rape black women who often end up getting pregnant. The discourse here is focused on the fact that mulattoes are the living proof of the immoral behavior of white men. No one says a thing about what's going on with black women. Again, they were raped. There's no other way to put it. In Ebonywood, we don't get to see a rape scene, but at some point, the sexual violences against enslaved black women are briefly mentioned in a voiceover. As a black woman myself from the Caribbean, what's frustrating to me is that these fictions never call rape for what it is. And it's not even about saying the word, it's just the fact that no one comes to the defense of this black woman. No one even tries to come to the defense of this black woman. Some fictions will try to get around to allow the black characters to claim power over their own bodies. I actually wrote an article about it based on the representation in miniseries Underground and miniseries The Book of Negroes. I'm going to translate it. I don't know when, I just know I will. I think Google Translate has really improved, so if you're interested, maybe you can still try to read it with Google Translate for now. Let me just say that 
In this article, I give various examples on how Aminata, in the Book of Negroes, has control over her body no matter how bad her master tries to physically hurt her and to mentally break her. In Underground, it's even more straightforward with the character of Ernestine, who really I have yet to see an enslaved black woman represented as such a strong and resilient character. I mean, she really goes hard to protect the children she had with the master who raped her, but the miniseries makes it clear again that she hates him. There's no love. She just does what she has to do to protect herself and her family. I think when I translate my article, I'll probably make an update with the Long Song miniseries. And the ending of the miniseries does show how, quote-unquote, love between a white master and an enslaved black woman cannot exist in a slavery system. The representation of sexual violence also happens with enslaved black men. The image of black men in cinema and literature was built to make them look threatening and to inspire fear in order to justify the violence inflicted on them. The Mandigo stereotype from the 70s reflects this perception of black men being beasts with a sexual strength that must be destroyed. British miniseries The Long Song and French miniseries Beta Tropics follow some of the storyline of the American film Mandingo, released in 1976. The white master has an quote-unquote exclusive relationship with his female slave and neglects his jealous wife. Again, this is ordinary representation. What we should really pay attention to is the response of the wife character. In the long song and in Bitter Tropics, she gets angry, but she waits around. This focus makes you easily forget about her social status. Regardless of the fact she doesn't get her husband's attention, she's still at an advantage in the slavery system. She still has her privilege. In the American film, 12 Year Slave, or in the miniseries Underground, the wife finds a way to punish the enslaved black woman who gets her husband's attention. The film Indigo takes it a step further because the white mistress wants to take revenge on her husband by forcing Mede. I think you pronounce it Mede, Med, I don't know. It's male, he's a male slave to, and she wants, she forces him to have sex with her. The fact that he cannot say no means that it is rape. And the fact that it happens several times keeps dehumanizing him and it turns him into a tool. Considering how I often see the word mendigo used in pop culture, media, and even in black romance to talk about a strong black man to glorify his sexual strength, I feel like this mendigo stereotype minimalizes the sexual violence-related 
power dynamic black men also were victims of during slavery and when the black man character has to deal with a white woman character the white woman character is the one with the power the true power that is basically the last narrative arc of brazilian telenovela dona beja it was broadcast in 1986 so you have ramos he's a runaway slave and he wants to have sex with Donna Beja, a white rich courtesan. Yeah, because of course, of course, when you're a slave on the run, your only goal is to have sex with a white woman. Anyway, Donna Beja accepts if he kills her ex-fiancé who betrayed her and got her beaten up. Ramos does what she wants. However, when they both get trialed for the murder of the ex-fiancé, no one believes Ramos' story and he takes the fall for Dona Beja. My point here is that the power dynamic is always in favor of the white woman character and it is very rare to represent this power through the sexual violence that enslaved black men were victims of. And when they do represent a white woman, black man, quote-unquote, relationship, it never ends well. Speaking of ending, I want to finish this whole demonstration with a final storytelling strategy to represent the power dynamic in slaverism. It's the representation of how black people resisted. So, of course, there's the armed struggle. I talked about it in episode 1, so I won't talk about it here. I just want to mention the representation of this specific figure in the armed struggle, the figure of Le Neg Marron. It's often represented in films and series set in the Caribbean. The Neg Marron was what English people call a maroon. A Neg Marron was a runaway slave. They are usually pictured as small groups living in the hills and sometimes going back to the habitation to steal food, to see their family, and even to kill the masters. The Neg Marron in French cinema and television is marginalized. In the comedy Casse Départ, released in 2011, the group of Neg Marron was used for comic relief which is a very white French perspective. Historians always stress the fact that only a small percentage of slaves managed to run away and live long enough to be called Neg Marron. Yet, in terms of representation, the Neg Marron is very important to symbolize how black people fought all the time for their freedom. Now, in English, maroon isn't a gendered expression. It is in Creole and in French. Neg marron is for men and it hides the fact that women also went hard in the armed struggle. In Brazil, there's Dandara, who is represented in the film Quilombo, released in 1984. In Jamaica, there's Queen Nani, and a documentary fiction about her was released in 2015. As for Guadeloupe, the book 
La Mulatresse Solitude by André and Simone Schwarzbart helped create the myth around solitude. A runaway slave who was pregnant and she was in the fights against French troops in 1802. She got arrested and was hung right after giving birth. We have yet to get a film adaptation. I know discussions have been happening for years though. Anyway, I think we are at a turning point in the history of representation of slavery in French cinema and television. What we need now is something that I believe English-speaking series have already tried to do, the representation of enslaved black people as a community of individuals. Of course, representing enslaved black people means that the representations of rebellions will have to be more accurate and nuanced. You can either go for a metaphor like in the long song, or you can show the fights between white characters and black characters on the screen, which brings us back to the representation of the power dynamic and the representation of violence. Which bodies will we see get hurt on screen? Resistance wasn't only about open violence. I think we're finally moving on from the binary house slave versus the field slave narrative and historians really try to highlight how both categories resisted within the limits their condition gave them. In Bitter Tropics, this nuanced representation is there. The armed struggle with Koyaba and the quiet resistance with Adele and her father Amidi, but it's not stated as clearly as you can see in Underground or in The Long Song. In The Long Song, there's this powerful scene when the black characters get to say no in the face of their white ex-master. In Ebony Wood, the storyline totally misrepresented this quiet resistance and marginalized it. I thought it was really disrespectful to name a character Solitude to give her the same death circumstances without giving the proper contextualization. Like I said, La Mulatresse Solitude, the Mulatto Solitude, is on the armed struggle side of the representation and she got killed the year slavery was reinstated in Guadeloupe. The solitude in Ebony Wood is a random enslaved woman at some random time in history who was accused of poisoning her master's cattle. There was actually a woman poisoner in the history of resistance in Guadeloupe. She was called Negresse Gertrude and was accused of poisoning her master's cattle. She got executed in 1822 in the town of Petitbourg. And just like La Mulatresse Solitude has uh, her own statue in Les Abimes, Négresse Gertrude has her statue in Petitbourg. My point here is to show how, as you can see, a narrative can easily be changed to get true facts mixed up and rewrite the history passed on to future generations. I know about La Mulatresse Solitude and about Négresse Gertrude because I'm from Guadeloupe. I've seen these statues. I've cared to do my research. The mainstream audience doesn't have the means or resources to figure out 
if the content brought to them as documentary or and fiction is accurate. That's why cinema and television are very important to build the narrative. Cinema and television are media for the masses. They're wonderful tools to educate, but also very easy to manipulate. And such manipulations may have very bad consequences, as we can see it every day. And if you're black, you know exactly what I mean. Anyway, there are so many other things I wanted to talk about, but I think it's quite enough for a guidebook. I might do another special edition to focus on the history of representation itself one day, maybe. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Caro I have a newsletter now, so go over to carocaramon.com and subscribe to get the updates on all my other projects. If you want Caro to get more visibility, you can give me five stars on Apple Podcast. I'm currently working on the English version of season two. Just subscribe to my newsletter and you'll know exactly when season two is coming back. I'll see you soon. Take care of you and your loved ones. Ciao,